Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Warrior You Podcast with your host, Bram Connolly. Join Bram as he uncovers what is to be a modern-day warrior on and off the battlefield, covering such topics as human performance, emotional intelligence, resilience, mental toughness, epigenetics, neuroplasticity, philosophy, and much, much more. Warrior You, it's the performance advantage. And don't forget to check out Mentors for Military Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Warrior U. If you're anything like me, then you see yourself as a life's work. I see myself as a project that can be changed, tweaked, and developed through motivation and education. I'm in the pursuit of simply being better than yesterday. If you do think like that, then this podcast is for you. Righto, let's dive in and see who we have as a guest today. Bram, I always introduce myself in these kinds of things as soldier, scholar, and management consultant, because those three roles have defined who I am and how I've how my career has developed, and it also defines my approach. I've always believed in the importance of, of knowledge and re- research and deep insight into whatever you're trying to do in a, in a serious kind of way, and my professional motto is there's nothing as practical as a good theory. So when I wrote this book, I wanted it to be not only relevant and readable, but I also wanted it to be rigorous, namely that it would be consistent with the most up-to-date theories and um, research associated with the practice of this nebulous activity called leadership. Anyway, I graduated from the Royal Military College in the mid-60s, served as a regimental officer for a number of years, including uh, a tour of duty in Vietnam as a forward observer with the um, with the 4RAR, and then I came back and I drifted into analytical slash consultancy activities within the army, and they, as a consequence, they gave me the best education that money could buy. After I'd served for about 25 years, I seemed to be running out of career options, so I left to be a lecturer at a university, University of Canberra to be precise, and after that I left there to be a full-time management consultant, first for a big company and then working with my wife as independent consultants for a large number of years. Yes, I certainly, certainly soldier, soldier scholar. (laughs) Yeah, but then I drifted back to the army in the later part of that. I came back into the army reserve and I was associated with the Australian Defence College Mm. as a visiting fellow in their Centre for Defence Leadership and Ethics. And that reintroduced me to the the topic of leadership and I 
was able to participate in a number of leadership development activities and, just as importantly, have time to reacquaint myself with the expanding literature, scholarly literature on leadership, which proved to be very much more intriguing and useful than it had been when I did my PhD in the, in the mid-70s. And what was your PhD and, in? Uh, I drew a lot of ideas from that, which I hope uh, make my book a, a more useful instrument. Yeah, sorry, what was your PhD in? In organisational behaviour, where I was concentrating particularly on career development. Okay. I had been a, a training systems advisor in the few years earlier than that and I uh, helping the Army adapt to a new approach to training called the systems approach, which involved the, the detailed analysis of, of what people do and then the specification of training to follow that. But I, towards the end of that, I, I began to realise that it did for, um, for officers in particular and for senior NCOs, it meant, meant it went much deeper than that and the study of uh, how people's careers develop was just as important. So that was the focus of my activity when I was doing the PhD. So you're to blame for the systems approach to training? Yes. Wow, I've nailed it. Um, look, I'm going to ask you straight off the bat, very first question, you know, what is your definition of leadership? That is such a good one to start with. And, you know, very few people actually begin with that. Mm. And you really should because it's, it's such... We often launch into discussions of leadership without really defining what it is that we're, that we're talking about. And I suppose if there, there's a good human co um, reason for that, and it's, it's such a nebulous concept, really. It's, um, I sometimes describe it as that magic spark. Uh, it's a little bit like falling in love. You know it when it's happened, but you can't quite understand how it did happen and why it did happen and why it will continue to to hold this enchantment for you, this sense of uh, engagement. Mm. But the the definition I use is that it's uh, it's a process in which a person or a small group of people engage others in the willing pursuit of common goals in conditions of uncertainty or risk or in anticipation of such mm. conditions. Mm. And what I do in my book is to tease out each of the elements of that particular definition and explain their significance to the to the leadership process. Well, I, should, that, I should go on and I should go on and say that you know sort of break in and say that the book you're talking about is the the leadership secrets of the Australian Army, which we'll we'll um, we'll get to, and, and I've, I've read it myself, and I'm quite impressed with it. Um, yeah, and I, I guess after you know years of junior leadership roles and then and then combat leadership roles that, that I had, my my definition of leadership not as sort of uh, I don't want to use the word whimsical, not as um, enchanted, so. And I'm interested to see from from a, an academic of you know such as yourself if I'm on the money here. But my definition is leadership is getting someone else to do uh, what you want them to do because they want to do it. Not a bad one. Mm. Not a bad one. Which for me is building a building a fan base almost. Yeah. Yeah. And the important thing, the important element in your definition is getting somebody else to want to do. Mm. What you want them to do, which could be, so you're not you're not forcing them to do it. No. It's not compulsion. It's mm. not uh, authoritarian. Mm. 
although it may be authoritative, mm. but it's they, they engage willingly. They commit to the task that you set them and they make that their goal as well as yours. Yeah. I've been lately been thinking about, because people keep asking me about the difference between management and leadership, and I'm almost at the point now where I sort of think people get too wrapped around the axles with the whole management thing. And, and really, a manage, for, for me, it's a leader is a leader is a leader. You know, manager, leader. Um, if someone still holds a management position, they're still a leader per se. But yeah, I am interested in, in the difference between management and leadership. There's a conceptual difference, and but it's it's not as well defined. It's not in practical terms. It's 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 not as clear as um, as the textbooks make out. the The conceptual difference is that uh, leadership is about tackling tasks for which there is no clear way forward, mm. in which the way forward is un- uncertain, or in which you have to invent or adapt new ways of approaching a particular task, whereas management is a process of doing a, a standard task well and efficiently. Mm. Now, the that. overlap between them mm. is that there is no... I don't believe there's any task in which a certain amount of leadership doesn't enliven the process, mm. Mm. make mm. people feel better about what what okay. they are doing and more engaged with the, with the task. Yeah. And the... And the second point worth mentioning is that a sensible leader uses the easy times to prepare for the tough times. Mm. So they, they engage with their team in a way in which, which builds leadership capital, leadership credit, mm. when they will have to call on that team to, to take a few risks, to get out of their comfort zones and to trust them that leader and themselves, the individual team members and their fellow team members, to tackle the the uncertain situation that is uh, either impending or with them at that time. I see. Yeah. Okay. That, that's a good point. So something as simple as you know going through. So for a, for instance, a mining job where where each day that you have the same the same sort of structure to the day where you know you arrive, you do a pre-start you go through the um you know that you go through the mechanics of the mining for the day it's the same day in day out maybe the mine gets a bit of a vote and things change slightly but it's a real management type role but there's there might be when you have a uh you know an issue where things are outside the norm or you might have an emergency or the rock might have you know, presented itself in a way that's different after you've after you've done a done a blast. Then, then that's when the the supervisor would need to then show leadership, you know, capabilities because he's doing something outside of the normal daily, um, you know, interaction. Yes, that's right. So in those easy times that you were speaking about, the the, the standardised stuff, that leader is continually presenting him or herself as a certain kind of person, a person who knows their stuff, who has authority because of their background mm. and specialist expertise and and wide uh, understanding of the activities mm. beyond the team that mm. uh, you know the, the, the team fits into, uh, a person who can be trusted because they are honest, because they have integrity, because they are resilient, they won't crack under, under pressure, a person who believes in the team members 
and in the team and who treats those team members and the team with respect and who is continually uh, working constructively with the with the team to improve their processes. But their leadership to, to potential is... To do it slightly differently or to, to expand the, yeah. the, the, the shape of the, the team's activities. And their leadership potential is then just bubbling away below the surface, ready to sort of ready to sort of be um, implemented whenever the situation should arise. Yes, yeah. that's right. The Leadership Secrets of the Australian Army, the, the the book that you've written, I know that your experiences during the bushfires in Black Saturday were probably the catalyst to you deciding to write this. Um, am I right in, that, in in saying that? Yes, very much so. Do you want to tell us about your... Are you able to talk about your experiences during, during Black Saturday? Yeah, well, I, I live in the little... Um a lovely little central highlands town of marysville in victoria uh, which was one of the ground zero towns mm. on black black saturday the, the town was devastated only 30 odd buildings of mm. about 600 remained on sunday morning and 35 of our citizens died on that uh, on that night and i had um, I had been intending to, to do all sorts of things in 2009, but what I ended up doing was uh, throwing my weight behind the, the local citizens' leadership group to act as the conduit between the community and the recovery activities. The preceding six months were very important too because I, around um, this time, almost exactly a decade ago, I got a call from the University of Sydney who asked me if they if I would participate with them in a new executive MBA in which they wanted to give a particular emphasis to leadership and to particularly to the way that leadership was done in organisations other than business ones. Mm. And they wanted me to present the military perspective. So I had spent the previous six months leading up to Black Saturday thinking about how this, how I could communicate this nebulous process of leadership and particularly military leadership to these business executive uh, participants in the MBA program. So I'd, I'd really got on top of the of the concepts and probably for the first time I really understood the leadership process. Mm. When Black Saturday happened, which was just 48 hours after I delivered the, the very first of these executives. When it, when, it, when it happened, which was uh, two days after this first seminar, which went extremely well, and I, I returned to Marysville thinking that um, this went so well, I had to find some way to, to communicate it more, more broadly, uh, e.g. writing a book. But then, then, the, then, the, then the bushfire happened, and I joined the local community leadership group in order to help my my community uh, recover. So I got involved in doing leadership again for the first time for 25 years. I really hadn't done any significant leadership activities since I, I took my, my jungle boots off in the mid-80s, and here I was doing it again. But for the first time in my leadership career, I actually knew what I was doing. Mm. And it was, in many ways, an exhilarating experience in an intellectual sense in an emotional sense because I, I knew what I had to do in any particular situation and I knew what I had to do to recover from any cock-ups that I made and I've made plenty of course you, you always do in those nebulous risky kind of uh, trying situations and, uh, I, and I was learning from, from what I was doing and it was, it was 
it confirmed my belief that certain principles of, of leadership were, were very effective in a broad range of situations. Mm. And moreover, that um, one of the most useful things a leader can do for him or herself is to have this little checklist of must behaviours that I progressively morphed, worked on over those months and uh, gradually refined them into what I now call the, the three R's of leadership. Mm. And, uh, and so I had this uh, checklist, a kind of an aid memoir that would be guiding moment by moment. Mm. And, and I could see whether it was working or not. And I, as I said, I could see what I needed to do if it, if it wasn't working. Right. And at the same time, and equally usefully, I could look at um, a number of other leaders who came from inside and outside the community to help us to gauge what it was that they were doing well or poorly that was making them effective as as leaders. Yeah. And and I could I could learn from that. And what are the sorry, what are the three R's just to The three R's are reflect, relate and run the team. Okay. And reflect means when when your team members look at you, they should see a role model, an idealised image of what that team stands for. Right. They should see themselves, really, mm. in you. Mm-hmm. You should be an ordinary bloke, but one of the best of those ordinary blokes. Right. Relate means dealing with people in ways that make them feel good about themselves, which make them feel that they can tackle whatever tasks are going to be thrown in their, in their direction and that they, could, they are learning from those activities. And running the team means that you are running the team in ways that bring it together as an entity, give it a sense of common identity, and also get the best from, from your people in terms of what they can contribute to the various activities that you're tackling. That makes sense to me. It's really good. And I've read that through the book as well, and I think it's something that people will, will get a lot out of if they really immerse themselves into the three R's. It's definitely a, uh, a good platform for leadership. What do you think is the most important chapter within the book? Oh, well, it's... Put it's, you on the spot there. It's a real hard one. I mean, it's, uh, it's all intended to hang together. But I, I suppose if there's uh, sort of a key chapter, it's, it's the one in the middle which introduces uh, the three we are as brief explains what each of them means. Yeah, I thought you'd say that. Uh, and, the, and the subsequent uh, chapters then go on to explain in a little more detail what reflect, relate, and running the team mean. And, and you said before that leadership in some ways is hard to pin down. It's sort of like love in some ways. You know, you, you know it when you see it, but other than that, you're sort of still you know trying to find it. But do you think do you think that leadership is you know that people are born with the ability of leadership, or do you think it's something that has to be shaped and taught over time? Or what's your opinion on that? Well, it's both, really. Uh, there's there's no question that there are inherent leadership traits, abilities. You know, that people are born with it. They are a product of genetic inheritance. People's uh, intelligence, for example, is uh, is quite an important factor. Uh, what what people look like, uh, their heights, their their physique. And what they what they learn from their from their parents too, which is um, which is part of the learning process and sort of partly, I suppose, in a way, ethical, because it's um, it's something that you learn as a consequence of being a member of that of a particular family. Mm. But if you're only going to rely on those uh, on those basic 
features, which is what, fortunately, a lot of people have to do because they don't get involved with solid leadership programs. You're going to be that much more limited. So good leaders uh, are made as well as being born. Mm. The, the process, uh, I, I heard this terrific phrase once, uh, which has become part of my lexicon, nature, fire, nurture. Mm. Uh, you, you take a person with who has inherent aptitude and the uh, embryo qualities which will make him or her a good leader one day, and you put them through uh, a series of development activities to expand and bring out those particular features and add to them, polish them up and engage them in a process of lifelong learning, and they will perform that much better at every leadership stage in their, in their lives. Mm. Nature via nurture. I like that. Hey Nick, you'd be you'd be proud of me as an ex uh, Ford observer from Vietnam because I am fighting here for comms. Um, I'm going to get the job done. Um, <laughs> so, what do you, you know, with army leaders? What do you think? Or um, I shouldn't say just army leaders with with defence force leaders. What do you think they bring to the the private and corporate sector that is that is unique? Well, it's not unique so much as um, well. Let me let, let me answer your question. Let's sort of discuss whether it's unique or not sort of irrelevant as we as we go through i suppose one of the most useful of the research activities that i engaged in for this book was getting in touch with a large number of former national servicemen who had been junior officers during the vietnam year. so they'd, they'd come in for their, their two years as national service the army had identified that they had leadership potential sent them to a special level six-month leadership course, uh, leadership development course at the officer training unit, and then they emerged as second lieutenants and served the balance of their time in regiments. And I lost track of the number of them who said to me that those two years in uniform were the foundation of their subsequently successful careers because they, they learned how to be, how to think like a leader, how to act like how to comport themselves like a leader so that when they went out, when they went back to civilian life, they, they were ready to take on the responsibilities of junior leadership in whatever organisations they might have gone to and gradually had learned in that, learned as a consequence and gradually progressed during their, their careers, getting better and better because they thought about leadership in a particular way. Um, but the and what particularly defined all, all of these people was that they had a sense of responsibility, a sense of what a leader needed to do with a team and within an, an organization, and a way of thinking and relating. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Getting to people, which got people engaged with the tasks that they were doing in the ways that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So the the military leader is developed from from the his or her earliest days in uniform. Mm. to think like this, and in particular in the early stages of the adult development, 
they they have a chance to embed this particular way of thinking, this particular yeah. uh, set of skills. What I think an army leader brings to the corporate world is that they know what good looks like and they have been led. And I think that a good leader needs to know what it is to be to be led. And because of the big machine of ADFA, RMC, and then the rank structure within the military, what you see is all these young leaders seeing good examples above them of leadership throughout their careers. And you probably don't get as widespread a a leadership example within the corporate sector as what you would in the military. So when people leave the defense force, you know, they're bringing an example of what good looks like into the corporate sector. And that for me is the fundamental difference between the machine that produces leaders and then the corporate sector, which is, you know, primarily concerned about bottom line and profits. Ram, you, you've expressed it so well. That's, that's really, really good way of putting it. They know what good looks like. Yeah, for army leaders, cultural change is a real, a difficult thing because they're not used to uh, leading through almost subversion and, and, and being surreptitious about it. The, the leadership that's required during change management is a, is a different type of leadership than the army leadership, which is probably one of the areas where we fall a little bit short. And I think that's a realm of HR and, and psychology. And I, I wanted to say, as, as far as you know, good leaders. I, I saw General General Cantwell when I was in Afghanistan. He was um, he was uh, a leader while I was there as part of the Special Ops Task Group. I, I thought he was a good leader at the time, a really good a really good leader. And then when I saw his public fight, um, you know, with PTSD, you know, I couldn't be any more proud of the of the guy. To be honest, I think it was a great example personally of. Of leadership in a public space. John Campbell is no doubt he's a very good leader mm. and what he did in that particular instance was he, he wasn't afraid to show his vulnerability. Mm. He, he presented himself as as an ordinary bloke, an ordinary humble bloke who was fighting uh, a particular affliction that was affecting him just as serious as it affected uh, anybody else, mm. and admitting admitting to his weaknesses and challenges in meeting that particular that particular challenge. Yeah, and for those for those people, you know, listening, want to know a bit more about John Cantwell. Um, not only was he, you know, I mean, he was involved in some hard decisions in in Iraq and. And then I know that the you know the, the deaths of a, a few of my friends in uh, in Afghanistan weighed heavily on him as the overall commander. But um, he also rides superbikes, which I know, I know shouldn't mean anything, but just to see this uh, stately older gentleman riding a you know BMW superbikes, not a bad <laughs> not a bad image. Well, I knew John Campbell too. Um, I, I knew him. A- uh, before Black Saturday, but I knew him a lot better a, a few weeks after, mm, because okay. he he came to he would, was appointed deputy CEO of the Wishfire Recovery Authority, mm. uh, and um, then for the first few weeks after the after the bushfires, he was actually essentially the CEO because the person who was appointed couldn't join them at that at, at that time. So John Campbell was was in charge. And he came to came to Marysville two or three weeks after the fires, mm. 
uh, he, um, he spent the day, uh, he was with Andrew Forrest at the time, but the minor billionaire and uh, philanthropist. They had spent that, uh, that previous day touring the district and talking to small groups of people about the particular issues that they were facing up to. Mm. And then we called a public meeting for the, uh, the day following, the Sunday night, and there were two or three hundred people packed into this room, and they were all feeling pretty bloody stressed, as okay. you can imagine. And John Cantwell, the mood of that meeting, and he, he changed the mood of the, co- of the community as a consequence. Yeah. One person said to me that uh, she, she'd arrived at the meeting feeling feeling very, very depressed, and she walked out of it feeling as though she was walking on air because Campbell had presented himself as a leader she could believe in. And the way he did it was very much that ordinary bloke persona that we were mentioning a couple of years ago. The the sort of fellow who would be riding on um, a superbike, the sort of person you you would have a beer with after after work. Mm. Uh, he, um, he waved away the microphone with the jocular remark that uh, he'd, um, he'd been a private soldier, a junior NCO, and he was used to using his voice in public. Mm. Took off his hat. He was wearing um, camouflage uniform. He took off his hat. He stepped into the crowd and he talked to them for about an hour. Yeah. He spent about uh, 15 minutes just outlining what it was that the authority was going to do. Yeah. What its uh, priorities were and how that would affect the, the community, both in the short term and then a little bit uh, beyond that. Yeah. As things uh, evolved, mm. and then he then he took questions, mm. uh, and those the questions went on for about an hour. Yeah. And he treated every single question. Questions were a little bit mm. left field, but uh, he he treated every one with equal seriousness. I mean, I, I could be, I could be standing right there. I, I know exactly what that's like because I saw him do exactly the same thing in um, Tarrantcout um, with the special ops task group. So it would have been, you know, it would have been exactly the same leadership, um, you know, expression of leadership and behaviour. And yeah, Graham, it comes back to this uh, reflect and relate elements of the three R's that I was talking about earlier. Mm. He presented himself as an an ordinary person, but the best of those ordinary people. When mm. people looked at John Campbell that night, they could see themselves in him, mm. but they could see a better version of themselves, a person who who they trusted to identify with their issues, but and in a way that was uh, which was going to be very effective and very worthwhile for that particular community. Which is similar to what you know. Uh, Cosgrove with the um, the cyclone yeah. in North Queensland and and Mark Smethurst now with the state emergency service in in New South Wales who who again you know I don't think I don't think New South Wales knows how lucky it is to have someone of that caliber in that in that position um, that leadership position leadership secrets of the Australian Army when's it actually out on the shelves. It's, it's been out since uh, late May, so it's okay. out there now, folks. Just go to your local bookshop and there you will find it. And I think, you know, airports and, and, and dimmicks are probably the key places that they'd be able to find it. Um, yes, and you can get it online through Amazon Kindle. And so what's what's next for you, Nick? What's, I 
got a feeling to follow in your footsteps, Brad. I'd like to turn my, my talents, such as they are, to, um, to writing fiction. Oh, nice. <laughs> stories, about, uh, stories about the army that, uh, that I reckon deserve to be told. You know, one of the, one of the reasons I, I wanted to write this book, and I was so sort of frustrated with, the, uh, with this contradiction that on, on the one hand, the Australian military is one of the country's most respected institutions. On the other hand, the Australian public knows bugger all, really, about what the Australian mm. military does. True. So I, I wanted to write stories, books like like yours, mm. um, which would uh, explain what this um, complicated beast is, and uh, that it really wasn't so different. Look, after reading after reading leadership secrets of the Australian Army, I think anything you turn your hand to is going to be is going to be gold. Um, and You're very kind. what my my what started me in the sort of realm of fiction was probably my love of Robert G. Barrett books back in the day, the, the Les Norton, um, the books that he wrote about the bouncer in, in King's Cross, you know, and then and the Flashman series and yes. things like that. And and I think that that sort of storytelling, um, it seems it seems that I was brought up during a period where people did lose themselves in, in books like that. And, and I thought maybe that was lost. But after writing The Fighting Season, I've noticed... Mostly, it's from soldiers that have got a lot of time in their hands at the range or wherever, waiting for trucks that are reading it or flights or whatever. But, mm. but people are still reading, and I think it. While there's no there's no real you know financial gain to it, so to speak, it's definitely a good honest way to make a buck, and it's and it's a good way to be creative and have a creative outlet. And I think for an academic like yourself, an ex soldier and, and scholar. You know, and if, it, and if you're anything like me, you've sort of been, for years, you know, you've been putting all this creativity, well, for me especially, it was putting all these creativity into writing briefs for, funnily enough, Mark Smethurst um, in, in the headquarters, but putting all these briefs, you know, writing for briefs for generals was my creative outlet or PowerPoints, and now that creative outlet can actually go into something creative, so that's a good pursuit, I think. Yeah. Let me know if you, um, want, let me know if you want any help. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll be reading your books uh, assiduously and uh, taking them apart to see what what it is that you that you do so well with that particular magic. Well, it's it's funny. I yeah, I had a mentor on the first one, and then I didn't on the second. And I think that shows. And I'm I'm going to go back to the building blocks on the on the third. And and uh, there's a few techniques that that I want to get right. Mm. Mm. That's. One other thing worth mentioning there, and I think it's something I heard you said that I absolutely agree with. I am so sick of seeing that the bulk of the information that uh, the Australian public take in about military activities comes from somewhere else mm. rather than from within mm. our own shores. Yeah. Oh, look, that's such a multifaceted uh, conversation to have. First and foremost, most people hear about the Australian Defence Force from the media, not the Australian Defence Force. And I think that we've got that fundamentally wrong. Absolutely. I know some people in PR in, in the military. It's not given anywhere near the credit nor the funding. Um, you know, people like me should be in the PR area of the military providing, you know, Instagram stories and, you know, Facebook lives and, and doing things for the military. But as soon as you leave the military, the military cast you away. And secondly... The U.S. military is 
more indicative of what's going on in the Australian military and the Australian public's eyes because that's where most of the kids are getting their information from because there's all these previous USSF you know SEALs that have such large profiles and and they're following them on Instagram some of these guys have got 60 100,000 followers and a lot of that a lot of them a quarter at least are from Australian kids so you know, we, we, we have missed the boat when it comes to being able to sell the Australian Defence Force to the wider community. And our population's small and, you know, and they don't forget. Well, mm. good luck on the crusade. Oh, look, it's just, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Um, <laughs> but it's good. You're doing it, mate. It's a good problem to have. And if I get up every day and just try and inspire people to join the, to join the Defence Force, you know, and if I can create positive narrative and positive stories then then that's my sort of piece of the leadership puzzle moving moving on from defense mm. um, this is just the, the podcast is just another avenue to do that you know i think i'd really like to sit down with you in the future and bring the recording gear you know one-on-one and and delve deeper into into leadership because i think that most people don't understand what it is and i think that uh, a lot of people really want to know how to deal with certain situations um, that's what they want to hear about. They want to hear about, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do when I, when I do leadership presentations is about, you know, leading leaders because that is fundamentally one of the hardest things you'll ever do. And the micro leaders within your teams, you know, I had that all through the platoons and I had that when, and I was one of those micro leaders when I was a, a, a corporal and a sergeant. So young officers had some real dramas with, with me and I can see that now. Um, and I'm a bit embarrassed about that actually. And then as a platoon commander in Afghanistan, you know, in combat, I had to use a lot of the experiences that, that I saw the, these platoon commanders, you know, use against me, you know, along with my own guys to keep them motivated and keep them moving forward. Some of them who probably knew better in some instances. So I think they're the sort of stories that people want to hear about. They want to understand, how do I have this conversation? How do I have this fierce conversation with a person at the water bubbler who's providing me with no end of issues? no end of leadership issue you know what does that conversation look like and how do you not escalate these things into verbal slinging matches you know and they're the sort of leadership stories people want to hear about you are you're absolutely so right and again it's one of these things that the military is really good at mm. but uh, doesn't really realize that it is it's, it's has, it has this these teams of leaders at uh, at every level who have learned to work together and who want to work together because they're working towards a common goal. The, uh, the the challenge for the civilian leader is to evolve some kind of equivalent uh, leadership culture in their own situation. Oh, I full heart, you know, I completely agree. And I think we're overlooking the fact that a military leader has the Australian Defence Force Disciplinary Act behind them, which I know sounds like a whole lot of gump, but actually what that gives them, it gives them it gives them not only credibility but gives them a, a legal standpoint to lead, whereas a lot of civilians don't have, um, well, they need to determine in their company their HR policies and have those HR policies as their platform for being able to lead because there's certain conversations that you can have and that you can't have and you need to be able to um, tell the subordinate what those what those conversations look like. And a, a leader going into a conversation with no understanding of their legal framework that they're operating in is going to be put in a position where they're not able to make a hard call. And if you can't make that hard call once, it'll come back to bite you again and again and again, and you'll be ineffective. And I, I think that that is the strength of the Australian Defence Force is that 
disciplinary act behind the leadership. And then you get good enough where you don't need it. You know, I hope that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, you should never, uh, you should be, you should be good enough that you, you never have to call upon it, but it's well, there, it is that. Um, the reason I say that it underpins leadership is because it means that a person can't stand in front of you and just tell you to fuck off. They have to stand there and they have to be able to understand that there is going to be a conversation here between a subordinate and a superior. Now, a leader's personality will dictate whether or not they leave that conversation as a leader or they leave that conversation as a bully. It's one of two things. Yeah, and for, for my money, I've got this saying that I use quite a lot. I made it up, I coined it, no one else can own it, which is you can't get fat from eating humble pie. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're in a leadership position, you should be eating humble pie a lot because... I call people out all the time who know things that are better than me. And then I'll say to them, yep, fair call, you got me. I get that. I get it. I understand now you've taught me something. Let's move on. I'm still a leader in that case. But it's when you it's when you say to someone, no, that can't be right. No, you're wrong. And they are clearly right that you again become ineffective. And humility for me is one of the key, one of the key you know, aspects to leadership, which is why I think Cantwell is so effective because you won't meet a more humble person. That's right. Mm. And, you know, you are, that is just so well expressed, Graham. Congratulations on coining that, uh, that phrase. And, you know, I, I saw a scholarly study uh, the other day which confirmed exactly your principle. And it, uh, it began by discussing the, um, the, the unfortunate perception that many leaders have that if they admit any sort of weakness, if they admit that they don't quite know how they should be approaching the task, then they will lose credibility with their team. Whereas, the, in essence, the opposite is the case. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to have to do it all of the time. No. But in situations where, where the team will understand that they, you know, this, is, this is a novel situation or a risky situation, mm. uh, and it's, uh, it's not unreasonable that uh, even uh, the most qualified person will be at least temporarily at a loss as to have tackled yeah. have tackled it. It's not unreasonable that that person will be at that uh, at that loss. And the fact that you admit it mm. and get the team to, to help you sort it out does your credibility and, and mm. trust enormous benefit. Yeah, agree. Mm. Um, Nick, I'm going to wrap it up. So thanks very well, much. Thanks very much. Mm. I, I congratulate you on your interview technique. Very good. I just listened to some of your other podcast and I formed that opinion and you've well and truly confirmed that here today. So well thanks Nick. I'm I am work. getting I am getting better at it. There's plenty to plenty to learn plenty to learn still and uh, again I do have um, a friend which is uh, you might you might have heard of Merrick Watts which is he's from you know the old American Rosso comedy show and uh, but people don't realise he's one of the I mean he's been in the radio industry for you know near on two and a half decades so I do get some um, feedback from him, and which is, you know, uh, very appreciated. So I'm getting better. Thanks very much, Nick. I hope the book does well. I'll um, I'll, I'll make sure to, to plug it on. Uh, I didn't realise it's actually been released. I thought it was still coming. Um, I'll be sure to do a, a write up and plug it on uh, on the Instagram account. Please do reach out if you want any assistance with anything in the future. But I'd I'd love to sit down and have a chat with you in person someday. Break, break, all call signs. This is Yankee Alpha from the Warrior U podcast. I need your immediate assistance in Sector 300. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash warrior you. I say again, visit www.patreon.com forward slash warrior you. I spell 
Patreon, Papa, Alpha, Tango, Romeo, Echo, Oscar, November. You can pledge $1 a month or much more to also receive some great rewards. Save this call sign from imminent defeat. Yankee Alpha, out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.